investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to episode six of the Absolute Return podcast. I am your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kesslering. We have an exciting show for you guys today. Going to talk about a number of uh, super cool stuff that happened in the markets this week. And number one, well, we want to talk about the danger of return targeting. We're going to talk about the Fed, uh, the standing pad on rates and where they're going from here. We're going to talk about a big short in the Canadian banks. Also going to discuss IPOs. Are they a great buyer? Are they probably overpriced? And lastly, talk about the U.S. Treasury yield curve inverting and what that means for the economy and the stock market. Big news in the bond markets with the U.S. Treasury yield curve inverting the first time since 2007. And a yield curve inversion is a really big deal because a yield curve inversion is one of the most popular leading indicators in terms of predicting a recession. And so what happened was there are three-month T-bills, short-term bills that, that you buy that mature over three months. And if you go out on the long side of the curve, there are 10-year Treasury bonds. So in a well-functioning market, uh, the three-month yield is typically lower than the 10-year yield. Obviously, you want a higher yield to have to take on that interest rate risk of holding longer duration paper out to 10 years. But what happened is that the 10-year yield, it actually declined below that of the three-month, which is a, a pretty big event. Like I said, it hasn't happened since 2007, and we all know what happened uh, in 2007 you know, a number of, uh, call it 18 months later, was the commencement of the global financial crisis, which was one of the worst uh, recessions in in a generation. So it's definitely uh, a yellow flag here, Mike. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, no, I guess, I mean, like like you had mentioned, it's uh, kind of a duration play where investors have more appetite for the 10-year. You know, when you say that it's yellow flag, I guess, how, how effective would you describe it as an indicator? Well, first I want to get to, you know, what caused this. You've had the Fed hiking rates on the short end of the curve and, you know, the Fed increasing their policy rate to now uh, kind of in the two and a quarter range has increased. Uh, it really affects shorter term rates, so it will affect the uh, the three month yield. And so you've had that increasing steadily over the past number of years. Then on the long side, you had a couple of negative data points on the economic side, specifically U.S. manufacturing data came in below estimates this week, in addition to German uh, manufacturing data. So it's not just the U.S., you really have a global economic slowdown, not talking about recession currently, but just economic numbers coming in below expectations. You actually saw the 10-year yield in Germany hit zero. <laughs> so it can go a lot lower than where it is uh, in the in the U.S. And so this year, the 10-year slip to kind of in the, the 245 range. And this indicator in terms of accuracy, it's it's kind of all over the map. You can't really believe that it's set in stone that we're going to enter a recession right away. Its track record is relatively mixed. Uh, I've seen an analysis that shows kind of recession beginning, say, between six months and all the way out to two to three years. 
after the yield curve inverts. And, and so what happens? How do you get a, a yield curve to go back from an inversion? Well, you either have, have the Fed cutting rates or a higher economic growth that will increase yields on the long end of the curve. So this is certainly one to monitor make sure you're comfortable with your asset allocation, not too levered up in the stock markets or anything like that. It's just a kind of a sign of caution. Uh, to make sure you got all your ducks in a row and and just be on notice that uh, you know this signal is calling for a potential recession in the in the near term, say next uh, year or two. And as we know, recessions tend to beget bear markets in the stock market. So that's something worthwhile considering and keeping your eye on. And that's something that we'll be bringing up is the the Fed, I guess, in later on. But now the the market is indicating that there could be a, a an actual cut by the end of 2020, which would go along with the thesis of a recession. Yeah, certainly we will have more intense discussion of where we're at in the cycle and, and, and the Fed cycle specifically later in the podcast. So we'll get to that fairly shortly. But for now, we're talking about IPOs. A big IPO hit in the market this week with 166-year-old blue jeans giant Levi Strauss and Co. going public for the second time in its existence. Its stock actually rallied over 30% in its initial day of trading, a real big hot IPO for a non-technology company, which was really interesting. You don't uh, tend to see that. But I mean, talk about this deal. It was, in fact, 10 times oversubscribed, just voracious demand for this one. And the company wasn't even really raising money. Uh, It was largely an exit for descendants of the founder, Levi Strauss, who founded the company, you know, what, 170 years ago almost. So members of the Haas family, they sold 21 million shares, which was nearly $400 million into their genes. And and so I'm always kind of skeptical of these types of IPOs. But nonetheless, it was very, very well received uh, by the market, which was uh, pretty interesting. I mean, they had a value, a market value of $8.7 billion after that initial IPO pop. And talking about fundamentals, Levi's has uh, 5% of the global jeans market. As I indicated, this is actually the second time it went public. They first went public in 1971 and then went private again via leveraged buyout, I believe, in the 80s. So it's been privately held by the uh, Strauss descendants, uh, this Haas family, uh, for a number of years. And so they're trying to monetize it. And the reason that they're doing that is they've had recent strong corporate performance and a very strong market for IPOs. And I looked at some of their historical financials and I was actually pretty shocked that in 1996, Levi's had sales of $7.1 billion, and by 2001, those have dropped 42% to $4.1 billion, so really got crushed in the late 90s, and they've only recovered to $5.6 billion, so still dramatically lower sales than uh, they had in the mid-90s, and so it's certainly not a growth business. However, you had a massive IPO pop and a lot of interest, a lot of eyeballs looking at this one. Yeah, and in, in t- also in terms of it's it's actually priced like a, a growth stock when you look at the valuation is based on my math, it's trading about 30 times earnings right now, which would indicate, you know, a, a really song, strong uh, growth company, not a, you know, more of a consumer company that's in kind of a cyclical decline. 
Yeah, they mentioned revenue rose 14% over the past year. But like I said, you look at the longer term trend, uh, they really uh, rescued themselves out of a tailspin in uh, in the late 90s. But, you know, the jeans market really is only expected to grow perhaps 2 to 3%. So in line with GDP, it's not necessarily a large growth industry, but it shows how hot this IPO market is. And it's a really interesting kind of divergence from what we talked about the uh, inversion of the yield curve predicting a potential recession in bear market, then you look at the the IPO market and that window is wide open, super bullish, and a lot of other startups going to start coming uh, public, right? Yeah, absolutely. And one, one thing to highlight in this IPO is the you had mentioned the Haas family, but the dual class structure um, for shares is actually quite interesting, is they will actually control, I believe they'll control about 60%, 66% of the shares, but will through a super voting structure will control 99% of the votes. And so typically this is done with a in a company with a visionary founder, um, you know, thinking of Facebook or you know, any of the tech companies such as Lyft is coming to market with a structure like that. Snap came to market with one. Yeah, um, no sh- no votes for the shares. Yes, yeah, that was actually shares. a very unique structure where, yeah, there was no vote- voting rights whatsoever. Um, and ironically, look at their share price since the IPO, they're down about 50%. Yeah, yeah. And so on this Levi's deal by super voting, you mean 10 votes for, for shares for the uh, the descendant family? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's real interesting. In my opinion, an example of poor corporate governance, not only do you have a ma- massive exit uh, of the family selling their shares, but then they're retaining pretty much total control of the company through 10 to 1 voting shares when everyone else in the IPO only gets one vote. So, you know, not the best corporate governance there. Then I wanted to talk about IPO performance in general, as we're calling this podcast, the IPO. Is it probably overpriced? And so we have an analysis in front of us here that shows that on average, there is a a big IPO pop. I'm seeing since 1980, the average IPO has popped about 18% on the first day. However, over the next three years, they have underperformed the market by roughly 19%. And so it just goes to show you, I believe IPOs, they're generally not a good buy. And the way to play them, if you can, is to get in on the first day and then just make make it for a quick flip. Capitalize on that IPO pop and just exit because the people buying after the IPO will typically see underperformance. And I think that uh, there is that IPO pot because everyone's looking for that rare lottery ticket like a Microsoft or, or Amazon. But the vast majority of them, if you buy them all, you'll most certainly underperform the market, at least according to our historical data. But looking at the uh, the IPO ETF, it's been on a tear this year. What What is it up? 35% or so. And so, um, you know, it doesn't work every time, but I believe on average that uh, initial public offerings are overpriced and will likely outperform on average on a go-forward basis. And another thing to look at in any of the IPO analysis is that it typically is dependent upon being part of that initial allocation, which is very important and part of the initial subscription. And, you know, the hot IPOs, by definition, like this one was 10 times oversubscribed. So it's very difficult to be a part of those IPOs. Um, So you're likely, you know, as a normal trader, you're going to be buying in after 
the larger the larger initial pop has already happened. Yeah, definitely. There's certainly some adverse selection where the best ones you're not getting in. So the ones that do poorly are the the most likely allocations that you'd get unless you're uh, paying you know tens of millions of commissions per year and and you're on the VIP or president's list for the brokerage firms. But you know that's pretty unlikely. So in general, I'd probably stay away from these. Interesting article this week in the Financial Times highlighting Steve Eisman, and you may know him from the movie and the book, uh, The Big Short. Uh, he was played by who? Uh, Steve Carell, was yeah, that it? Yeah. yeah. And so he's uh, infamous for short-selling uh, financial companies and I believe um, subprime mortgages and making a big bet against those uh, prior to the global financial crisis and really profiting off their decline. So there's an article this week highlighting his... Uh, he's been raising his bets against Canadian bank stocks and blaming that... Uh, potential uh, future adverse performance on slowing economic growth in Canada, a so softening housing market, and a decline in credit growth. And all of these would potentially cause increased loan losses at the Canadian banks, leading to uh, declines in net income and ultimately uh, poor share price performance. And if we look at the numbers, uh, wagers by short sellers against the banks have increased 19% uh, year to date up to 12.3 billion, so fairly sizable shorts there. And um, it's a really interesting situation. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, something that he mentioned in his analysis in the article was that the Canadian banks may not be mentally prepared since they are an oligopoly. But the fact that they are an oligopoly could arguably be one of their main strengths and why investors have invested in the Canadian banks historically and why they've had such strong pricing power and been such a strong dividend grower. Yeah, certainly that's a good point. I believe I read in an, ana an analysis recently that compared the bank stock performance total return against Berkshire Hathaway and Canadian banks actually outperformed Berkshire on a 10-year basis. And so certainly strong performers. And if you look at the return on equities of these companies, they certainly have been outperforming their U.S. counterparts by quite a large margin. So it just uh, you know, lends credence to the theory that they're somewhat uncompetitive with each other. It is an oligopoly. There's really only six major banks in Canada, and they don't really compete all that aggressively against each other. And, and the result is excess profitability for the corporations and the shareholders uh, owning those. But with respect to short selling, I've been following this story for a very long time. And uh, this initially first came up in 2013 and has kind of been circulated every year since. So you got to think about, you know, are they early or just wrong? And I think when you're six years early and the trade's gone against you massively, because Canadian banks had pretty strong share price performance since 2013, probably up on a total return basis north of 50% inclusive of dividends over that time period. So as a short seller, I think it's pretty clear they've been pretty wrong on this one thus far. You know, it could go the other way, but, you know, this trade not looking too good as it's been uh, so far. And when you mentioned 2013, I think you're referring to Steve Eisman's initial pitch at the uh, Iris Own conference, yeah. um, shorting the Canadian banks. But so I assume he's be had some form of the trade on, but as well, he did mention that this set of positions he put in place in 2018. So over the last 12 months, he likely would have broken even or around even on a total return basis. 
But with, with regards to this, one aspect of shorting the Canadian banks is that they're a dividend payer. So Julian, what are, what are some of the challenges when you're shorting a company that pays a dividend? Yeah, so when you short a company, you have to pay out the dividend that it pays. So I don't actually consider the dividend all that much. I just take into account that's part of the total return. So you know, efficient markets would say if a $100 stock pays a $1 dividend, the, the stock will de- decline to 99 on the day. So I take that into account in terms of total return, but uh, it certainly grinds you down over time. In addition, you, you typically have to pay a uh, borrow in order to short the stock. So it's an expensive proposition and markets typically go up over time. So short selling certainly isn't for everyone, especially on a net short basis. Typically people shorting stocks have offsetting longs, at least uh, large in value. So you can have some uh, cash flow and, and capital gains income from those to cover your shorts. A couple other points that I wanted to touch on on the story. And so Eisman says that uh, this is not the big short Canada. He's not calling for a housing collapse. He's more so calling for a normalization of credit, which would lead to probably just earnings weakness for the banks, no sort of bankruptcies like like you had in the U.S. and, and a massive credit crisis. It's, it's nothing along those lines. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to note is that in Q1, so far this year, for the six biggest banks in Canada, they actually missed analyst uh, consensus estimates for their earnings uh, for the quarter. So, you know, they haven't been doing great, but thus far, this short thesis just hasn't played out. Yeah, and I think you mentioned the just credit normalization. And so really, that's that's all he's looking for. And it would kind of an example of a, a very sexy headline where the underlying story is, you know, he didn't give any specific banks that he was shorting, just shorting them in general. So yeah, kind of look beyond the headlines. Yeah, short selling, typically the hardest part is the timing. And the timing on this one has thus far been quite elusive. Now on to the Fed. So as expected, the U.S. Federal Reserve kept its policy rate unchanged this week at 2.25 to 2.5 percent after their two-day meeting this week. So Fed Chair Jay Powell indicated that rate hikes in 2019 are likely off the table. Not just that, but uh, they also indicated it gave guidance that they would slow their balance sheet runoff and also ended entirely by September. And so why is He's so dovish these days? Well, a number of reasons. He blamed below-target inflation, slowing economic growth. And so now the market is thinking, you know, is the Fed done its rate-hiking cycle uh, for this economic cycle? And what's next? Are they going to start cutting rates? And certainly the market is beginning to uh, price that in. Certainly, as we did previously discussed on, on previous uh, episodes of the podcast, is that, you know, the rate-hiking cycle did seem like it was over and uh, the Fed just confirmed that and the market is increasingly pricing in rate cuts this year. I think estimates are as high as 40% now. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I guess some of the criticism on on Powell has been his communication with markets with the market sometimes not understanding what his intentions were. I guess this would be a case of him really clearing up any uncertainty whether there was going to be any uh, continued rate hikes. That that's now off the table. One other thing that I would mention is that, you know, being at these historical low, low rates, you know, 2.25 to 2.5% is it really lessens the margin for error when if there if and when there is the next recession for the amount of cuts that they can uh, can have down to zero. 
Um, it really just li- limits that flexibility in the long run, I would say. But yeah, yeah. And, and I guess the other aspect, and we did discuss this on a previous podcast, would be whether this is finally, uh, finally Powell really capitulating to Trump. Yeah, so a number of things to discuss here as we're talking about the uh, treasury yield inversion. So the Fed's dovishness here really caused a pretty big decline in in 10-year yields. I see that, you know, before the meeting, they're above uh, 2.6%. And I think near the end of the week, they're more around 2.45%. So pretty big decline uh, on the yield side. Um, not just that, but uh, they're also dovish in terms of unwinding their extremely large balance sheet. So as you noted, a big risk that people see going forward is that the Fed wanted to normalize policy. And where is normalized policy? Well, people were thinking that's more in the 4 to 5% range, right? If you envision 2% inflation, then real rates are really 25 basis points at this point, but if we look at some precedents here, back in uh, 2006, the end of its last tightening cycle, real rates were at 2.75%. So what that means with the 2% inflation, that means the uh, policy rate at nearly 5%. And then the prior cycle in 2000, you had 4% real rates. So that would equate to a policy rate of about 6%. The other thing that's pretty dovish about the Fed's stance currently is the $3.5 trillion of bonds on its balance sheet, which is actually equal to 17% of GDP. And you look uh, back to 2006, their balance sheet was 6% of GDP. So relative, you know, their, their balance sheet has nearly tripled in terms of size versus 13 years ago. So that's something to consider. The other thing is that um, they've been decreasing their growth projections. So back in September, they envisioned 2.5% growth, and that's declined to 2.1%. And a lot of their dovishness here and the the fact that they have uh, really seemed to end their rate hiking cycle and uh, also ending this balance sheet runoff is just they're blaming it on inflation. Um, They have a 2% inflation target. It just hasn't made it there. And they were thinking with unemployment declining, you had really good economic growth in the U.S. last year, not the three percent. They figured that they'd start to see some inflation pressures, but they're just not seeing that in the numbers. So they think that they are uh, fine on the rate pause for now. But as you say, there is some concern on lack of ammunition. Say there is a recession uh, in the next couple of years. The Fed seems to be lacking in uh, flexibility here with a policy rate that doesn't allow for too many cuts. If the economy does hit the rocks and they still have a fairly sizable balance sheet. Can they take on uh, you know, more assets onto the balance sheet? So ultimately, Fed Chair, he's, he's really trying to uh, have a balanced position here, trying to balance between having policy that's too loose or spurring uh, unwanted in inflation and asset bubbles. Then on the other side of the coin is a central bank that's too tight, that's raising rates and and aggressively running off its balance sheet that could prematurely end the expansion and ultimately cause a recession. So he's really, uh, you know, got his hand on, on the, on the uh, 
accelerator here of the economy and really trying to uh, maneuver it such that he can uh, land this one uh, in a smooth fashion. And, and when Powell was first uh, appointed to, uh, to the Fed chair, it was noted that he did come from a risk management framework. Um, so that has kind of followed that thesis. But the other aspect is the you, what you had mentioned were their long-term growth projections and just the delta between those projections and that of the White House being low 2% by the Fed and 3 to 4% long-term through the Trump White House. Yeah, I would certainly you know put my faith in the Federal Reserve and a team of professional economists other than Trump. But talking about those growth numbers, and I got some charts in front of me here. And so over the past kind of uh, eight, nine years, the Fed's long-term economic growth projections have actually steadily declined from 2.6% to 1.9%. Um, I also have the chart in front of me of the probability of a Fed rate cut in 2019. So that's actually spiked to 40%. Uh, chance of a rate cut this year. And going back to the start of just this month, I mean, it was in the single digit, so it's fairly low, but uh, it became uh, elevated fairly quickly. And uh, prior to the uh, decline in markets at the end of Q4, even in November, you had a near 0% chance of, uh, or 0% probability of rate cuts in 2019. And now it's nearly a coin flip at almost 50-50. So keep an eye on that. Another notable market move is the, as I said, the move in the 10-year government bond yield, which actually inverted the curve just just today, which is uh, on Friday, which is something to really flag and keep an eye on. But the consensus really was for 10-year bond yields to increase pretty dramatically this year with the economic expansion. I believe consensus was well into the uh, north of 3% range, and now you're sub 2.5%, just going the wrong way. I mean, they started March, uh, early March, north of 2.75%. So those have declined uh, fairly sizably. And if we look at the one day change in yields, this was actually the largest uh, decline in yields with uh, about eight basis points was the biggest since summer 2018. Um, So that's pretty sizable. And other effects of this uh, dovish statement and uh, comments from the Federal Reserve here, I mean, you had a big decline in the U.S. dollar on that day. It was down 0.6%. The other thing that's notable is uh, U.S. bank index really got punished this week just on the day of the uh, the Fed announcement, it was down north of 3%. And so when you have long-term bond yields coming down, uh, that really compresses uh, the profitability of banks. And so their stockholders are not ha- happy about what's happening at the Fed and what's going on with the economy because it's really they're really struggling to uh, maintain their margins with it. Yeah, and in terms of the banks, that being the one sector that really hasn't responded in this 10-year recovery, uh, they've been kind of struggling with low yields, so their net interest margins have been suppressed. And uh, yeah, overall, they just haven't reacted as much as some, you know, this tech sector, real estate, things of that nature. Yeah, certainly. If you look at the the massive market increase since the global financial crisis in the U.S., it's really largely been driven by you know the technology names such as the uh, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, Netflix names such as those. And and if you look at say Citigroup and 
and Bank of America, the other financial stocks, they really haven't recovered. And comparing U.S. stocks to global stocks, and global stocks, I believe, are kind of uh, where they were, what, 12 years ago? So you've had this massive divergence between uh, U.S. equities, specifically technology, just because the S&P 500 has a much larger weighting in technology. Compare that to global stocks, which have higher weightings in, say, financials, materials, and there's a big divergence there where you've had massive outperformance of U.S. equities. So that's something to to watch, and we'll see if the the U.S. tech sector continues its leadership. But for now, what you're seeing at the Fed and the yield curve certainly is not positive for the U.S. banking sector. And so, um, you know, that's something certainly to keep your eye on here as things progress. And as we previously indicated, the inversion of the yield curve, that's a pretty big deal. So we'll uh, keep our eye out for that and monitor how that progresses there. So we put out a blog post this week called The Danger of Return Targeting. I just wanted to uh, dive a bit deeper into that. So this post was spurred by an article in the Wall Street Journal this week that discussed CalPERS and some of their asset allocation decisions in a a recent uh, kind of policy meeting that they had. So what CalPERS is, it's the California Public Employees Retirement System. It's a $356 billion pension fund. So certainly one of the largest pension funds out there. And the goal of a pension fund effectively is to earn sufficient returns that would satisfy the pension obligations of their constituents. So they made these these promises. Workers over time, they contribute funds um, to the pension fund and the pension fund is supposed to earn sufficient returns to uh, effectively pay them out enough uh, throughout their retirement. And so uh, CalPERS here has done the calculations and they believe that they need a, a 7% return in order to satisfy those obligations. And I, I posted a pretty cool chart in the blog of how these allocations have changed over time. So if you go back to 1995, when bond yields were significantly higher, if you had a pension fund that needed to earn 7.5%, you could satisfy that with a portfolio of 100% bonds. And if you look at a portfolio that the bonds are typically the safest portion of a portfolio with uh, the lowest lowest standard deviation. So if you look at uh, the 1995 portfolio of 100% bonds to get a 7.5% return, that had a standard deviation, which is a standard measure of risk of 6%. Now, if we compare that same portfolio to 2015 to get that same 7.5% return, we had to replace 88% of those bonds with higher risk assets, including stocks, Uh, real estate and private equity, which had a standard deviation of nearly threefold or 17%. So this really highlights that pension funds and allocators to earn the returns that they used to be able to get relatively easily. They're really going out on the risk spectrum to earn those. And I just wanted to highlight uh, a quote from the CalPERS uh, chief investment officer here. He indicated that, quote, we need private equity, we need more of it, and we need it now. And so why do they need private equity? Well, it's to, quote, increase our chance of achieving the 7% rate of return. So to me, that was a big, big red flag. They're really just uh, amping up the risk here in a desperate attempt to earn the required returns when perhaps 
the more prudent thing to do would be to perhaps increase funding of the pension plan, decrease uh, the promises to workers if possible, understanding that they're in a tight spot and that uh, workers probably don't want to put in more money. And politically, that's always difficult to do. And so looking at, uh, I wanted to transition to looking at individual asset classes. And if we look at another endowments, asset allocation, and so private equity is one of the riskiest portions of an institutional portfolio with standard deviation of almost 24%. Now, if we compare that just to domestic equities at 18%, I mean, that's over 30% higher than U.S. stocks. And if we compare that to hedge funds with a standard deviation of about 8.6%, private equity is uh, nearly triple the risk level of hedge funds. And so uh, CalPERS here looking to increase their allocations to private equity. But in my opinion, you know, we're, we're kind of in the uh, potentially peak of the second la- largest economic expansion on record. Valuations are quite full. I read this week that uh, private equity valuations in terms of go privates now exceed uh, public multiples. And so they're really paying up. There's a lot of dry powder in private equity. A lot of allocators are, are looking at it like a panacea that will solve all of their return issues going forward. But I just don't think that that's the answer. I don't believe it'll be that easy. How about you? What are your thoughts on it? Well, yeah, and just mathematically, that can't be the case. If, if you're acquiring companies for above market multiples, you know, you can't really expect to earn above market returns over the long term. But when when we discuss, you know, looking at the risk side of the equation, obviously you need to balance that with the returns. So so how can an investor look at risk adjusted returns? So the easiest way to do that is to take standard deviation into account using those uh, estimates. And the difficult thing with private equity is, you know, you're not marked to market. And so they get a pass people tend to be oblivious to its uh, volatility because they don't get to check the accounts every day and see how it's swinging around. But one thing that I wanted to mention is that private equity, the reason that it is more volatile than uh, the broad stock market index is that private equity secret sauce is leverage. They use a lot of debt on their investments and that is you know, the vast majority of their excess return, it just comes from more leverage, more debt on their investments. And as you know, debt amplifies returns. It amplifies them to the upside and also it amplifies losses to the downside. So certainly, I think when allocating capital, one must take into account risk adjusted returns, take into account, you know, how much leverage are you utilizing here? What sort of standard deviation? What sort of risk? And ultimately, you know, what's your risk on on losing money here? But ultimately, if you're running a conservative organization like a pension fund, I don't necessarily think that private equity is the answer here. I think there are uh, other levers to pull and relying on increased allocations to one of the most levered and volatile asset classes, one of the most risky asset classes, I think that's ultimately a pretty risky proposition and ultimately it may not uh, work out well for them. And that wraps it up, ladies and gents, for episode six of the Absolute Return podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to tune in for next week. And if you get any, if you have any questions, be sure to reach out on Twitter, flip us an email, and we'll chat to you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com.
The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.